All right, I got 6.30, and since Ashley's not making us late, well, I was about to say, no, no, we're not late, and so we're good. We're starting on time. Now, if we go over, it's going to be somebody's fault, and it ain't going to be mine. Like, I know that much. It ain't going to be my fault. At least, you, well, then your time is wrong. 6.25. It, it doesn't, here, just to clarify, it doesn't matter what time y'all's watch says. It matters what time mine says. If mine says it's 7.30, it's 7.30. Like, that's just the way it is. In the Army, it's called first sergeant time. So somebody's got to have the final word, and it's the first sergeant. It's the top, the top highest-ranked NCO of the company. And so if his watch is fast, then your watch better be fast because you're on his time. All right, let me pray for us. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 11 tonight. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you got one of the Bibles from the pew, it's page 931. Uh, wait, what, what's that supposed to mean? Well, check me. See if I'm making that up. It's 931. Pulled that out of my head. Didn't even look. That's a lot. I looked. All right. Let me pray for us, and then we will talk about John chapter 11. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather, to be able to study your word, and even looking at a very familiar story with uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. God, I pray that you would give us new eyes to see what is going on in the text. I pray that you would give us new ears to hear what it is that you would have us to hear, that you would give us your spirit to be able to comprehend with all the saints what it is that you have given to us once for all. And God, I pray that you would just illuminate our hearts and minds in a way that only you can. And so, Father, we give this to you. Um, and as is my custom, I would just ask for you to pray for me specifically, um, that the words I say would be beneficial, they would be accurate, it would be clear. Um, so if you would, take a moment and pray for me, if you would. Father, we thank you, and I thank you for just the time I've been able to invest in study and preparation for basically covering this whole chapter. God, I pray that I would do it justice and that I would say only what is necessary, and that I would say only what it is that you would have me to say for us tonight, and that you would use the things that I do say, and that you would make it so much more than what I can do. And I pray that you would send your spirit for me uh, to be able to think clearly and to speak well but also that you would send your spirit so that we might comprehend together what it is you would have us do. And so, Father, we give you this time. We thank you for the opportunity, and we look forward to how you're going to work tonight. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Your clock is wrong. No, it's 931 page. That's what I said, 931. Is that not right? You said 932. No, 931. All right, since... Now we're correcting people on facts. Let's talk about what we talked about last time, right? So last session, we looked at the first half of John chapter 10, and this is when Jesus uh, unrolls the third and fourth I am statements. as uh, where he shows off saying that he is the door of the sheep, he is the door, and then also he is the good shepherd. Um, so that whole section, and these are some of the things that we talked about as like our final thoughts, is that one, Jesus is the only way to find life. You can search in any other way, and you won't find it. He is the only source of life. That's what we've been harping on for the last six chapters. He is the only way for us to truly find life. The next thing we talked about, or kind of a concluding thought, was that all of Jesus' sheep, there's one flock and one shepherd, right? So all of us come to know him the exact same way. We all must believe and have faith in his atoning death and his resurrection, right? If you kind of just condense it down to that, 
we all have that exact same thing in common. There's none of us who have a leg up on anyone else. That's not how this works, right? We all come to know him the exact same way. Not only does that mean that God knows you because he knows the conditions in which you came to him, but he knows you intimately. That word for know is used over and over in that 20-verse section that we looked at. Yeah, So he knows you intimately. And this is one of the big ones that we need to really square with. All those other places where you try to find um, satisfaction, where you try to find fulfillment, they are false shepherds. They do not care for you. They will leave you wanting, every single one of them because that's not what they were designed to do. Even the good things in our life, it's just not Jesus. Only Jesus is Jesus. Anything else is gonna fail you, right? And then lastly, we said that Jesus is divisive. He is intentionally being divisive. He says hard things and he calls people to faith and that shows who you belong to, whether you belong to the shepherd or not, if you respond in faith to his words, yeah? Cool. All right. So the connection between John chapter 10 and in John chapter 11 is that uh, we are closing out that John chapter 5 through 10 section where is this series of escalating conflict. And now this is like the last kind of public thing that we really see um, with Jesus here in John chapter 11. There's some after effects that happen in John chapter 12, and we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. But what's going on at this point is that uh, we had the Feast of Tabernacles that was in the first half of John chapter 10. The second half of John chapter 10 is the Feast of Dedication. And where we land at the end of tonight and really the beginning of John chapter 12 is that we're right next to the Passover. And so there's, we're getting pretty close to Jesus' death. Now, we still got a dozen chapters or so left in the book of John, but this is going to be really focused on a very small period in Jesus' life. It's going to be the rest of the book. Yeah? So here's where we are heading for tonight. We've got really six major sections that we're going to look at. We are basically going to cover all of John chapter 11. Um, and we're going to really fly through those last two uh, when we peek into John chapter 12, as well as the, uh, the bit that follows the resurrection of Lazarus. But this is where we're heading. Those are the six slides you're going to see in front of you. Take notes, hang on, and then we'll have final thoughts there at the end. Yeah? Cool? Excellent. So let us talk about the first 16 verses where we see Lazarus's death. I'm going to read for us about the first three or so. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus that was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then Jesus says, hey, this illness doesn't lead to death, but it's going to lead to the glory of God, right? So here's the first thing I want you to see. And this isn't even a note for you up there. Did you notice how Mary was described here in verse 2? That she's the one who anointed, Jesus's, uh, who anointed Jesus and used her hair and everything? That actually hasn't even happened yet in the book. In fact, that's the first nine verses or so of John chapter 12, right? Here's the point. She was so well known for this that John just refers to her as like, oh, well, she's the one who anointed Jesus. By the way, chapter 12, when we get there, let me tell you about that anointment, right? So that's how common it was known that she did this for Jesus. And we'll talk a little bit about that 
in a YouTube video because we're not going to cover that section in here. Yeah? So I just want to throw that out there for you. But here's the deal. In this section, we see an echo of all the way back in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And if you remember, in John chapter 9, that's whenever Jesus healed the blind man. And it starts off in this whole conversation where there's this blind dude, and Jesus, uh, his disciples are arguing or asking Jesus, hey, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus' answer was, neither, neither. You're missing the point. What this is going to lead to is that God gets to show off in this, right? Here, in this account of Lazarus, it's almost the exact same thing. Look with me there in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness here, this illness, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. You're going to see here at the very beginning, it's a reference, an echo of John chapter 9. And then when we get to the end of this section, uh, there in verse 37, you're going to see another reference to that. So we're going to, we, we can't get away from this healing of the blind guy. Right? It keeps coming up over and over again. So I want you to see that all the same. So he gets told by these messengers who come, hey, Lazarus is about to die. Like this dude is like for real about to die. Pick it up there in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Right. So it's not that he's cold and unaffectionate. He loves them. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? So what happens is Jesus intentionally stays two more days where he was. He doesn't go to Bethany where Lazarus is. He stays exactly where he is. That's kind of crazy. If you remember, we talked about there were two other instances that have happened in John where a request is made of Jesus, and he initially either hesitates with the uh, turning water into wine and then the blind guy. We actually see there's a little bit of a hesitation there. Um, Jesus will initially hesitate, but then he actually does the thing that's requested of him. So he intentionally waits two days. And what do we know about Lazarus from the rest of the story? Because it's a fairly well-known thing. What happens to him? He dies. Okay, we're going to talk about that here in a bit. But he lingers for two more days, but he dies. Does this fit the mold of like when you think of Jesus, hey, Ed, I know you're really sick. I know that you're on the verge of death. Let me hang on two more days and not help you until I get there. Does that fit the mold of what we think about Jesus typically? Like, no, we almost have like this idea of Jesus is like frantically running around healing every single person he has contact with. And that just ain't it. Right. He goes on to say there in verse seven. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said, hey, Rabbi, is that a good idea? You know, the last time we went down there, they tried to kill you. And they're going to again, right? So, point is, when Jesus goes eventually, he's going to face even more hostility. That's the whole point of John chapters 5 through 10, right? The whole thing was this series of escalating conflict and this is where we kind of mark out and say, yeah, that's going to happen again. And sure enough, we're going to see some of that show up here later on, right? And so he holds on for a bit and says, hey, we'll go down there here in a bit. And his disciples are like, that's not a good idea. But what Jesus responds with is there in verse 9. And then he answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world or light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because... 
the light is not of him. Did I skip something? Yeah, verse 9. Let me try that again. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after he said these things, he said to them, Let's go. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go wake him up. Right? And what do we know about that? That's a euphemism. He's asleep. And then his boys are like, Jesus, why would we go wake him up? If he's sleeping, he'll get better. Just leave him. Just let him sleep. Let him sleep it off. But here's the deal. Jesus ain't talking about sleep. He's talking about death. But the point that John's making is that compared to Jesus, even death is just asleep. Are you tracking with that? Like, yes, is that a common euphemism that was used to refer to death? Absolutely. However, Jesus is constantly, John is always showing that Jesus has dual meaning in what he's saying. And here he's saying, yeah, compared to me, this really is just him sleeping. I'm going to go show you. I'm going to go wake him up. Why would you wake him up, Jesus? He needs to sleep. Yeah, yeah that's, that's not what I'm talking about, fellas, right? So he goes on to say, guys, you're not getting me. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Here's the question. How would Jesus know that? He has supernatural knowledge because he is divine. They don't get the fact that Jesus knows he's dead. By the way, what was the last word that he had heard about Lazarus? He was sick. But now Jesus is saying, no, guys, he's, he's dead for real. And he has to tell him plainly. And so, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. What? I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. And so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, all right, well, let us also go that we may die with him. Right? And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. But I just want to highlight here, Thomas, as pessimistic as he is, yes, that's verse 16. Whenever Thomas says, hey, let us just go die with him as well. He's being pessimistic, but he's also saying clearly, I would rather go die with Jesus than die apart from him. So I think Thomas generally gets a bad rap, right? In fact, John is the only gospel writer who actually gives us any details about Thomas other than the doubting Thomas issue, which, does this sound like the doubting Thomas? I mean, maybe a little morose, but at the same time, he, he shows faith. I would rather be with Jesus and die than just walk away from this, yeah? All right, so that sets the stage of Lazarus's death. What's on your mind? Questions, comments? Ed, you got something? All right, so then let's go to verse 17 through 27, where we're going to talk about Jesus and Martha. We're going to see Mary in the next section, but right now we're talking about her sister, uh, Martha. So let's look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, now, this is about a day journey, so if you take into account that he was told, he waits two more days, and then he uh, makes the one-day journey. This is like three days after he had encountered the messengers. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. So what does that tell us about the timeline here? When did Lazarus die? That means he died like the messengers walk out and then he dies. So was Jesus really waiting? 
Was he really waiting for two days? Like, he was already dead at that point. He knew it. So the two days thing is kind of, eh, not, it's a non-issue, frankly. But also the point of this is that it's going to demonstrate, like, this is a hard thing to do. This guy didn't, like, just keel over. Like, homeboy is decomposing as we speak. Has been for a couple of days, right? So, number one, the timeline, this is, this is how we get to four days, is the messengers leave almost immediately after they leave and make a one-day journey. Lazarus dies. They spend the night. They come back, right? Jesus hangs out for two more days, and then he makes the one-day journey. There's your four days, yeah? So, there's just incredible, like, like, accuracy here. Let's keep rolling on. Verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to met, uh, meet and, and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. We'll see her in a bit. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So what do y'all take that to mean? What, is, what does that show us about Martha? What does that tell us? Whenever we see Martha, the first thing she does when she finds out Jesus is there, she comes out and says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is she scolding him? She knew Jesus could heal, and she's upset. Good. She has faith. Here's the deal. She's got great faith in Jesus. What's he sick with? Doesn't matter. Jesus is here. He could heal him. How bad is it? Doesn't matter. Jesus is here. He, he could take care of it, right? Now, this is going to evolve a little bit here in just a moment, but the point is that Martha has great faith in Jesus. The first thing she says to him is, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died, right? And so, this is where the conversation kind of spins forward from there. Let's pick it up there in verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Jesus said to her, hey, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So when Jesus says, hey, your brother's going to rise again, her immediate thought was, yeah, I know he will because he's trusted in God for the provision of salvation. And there's a resurrection. Like, we just know that, right? But actually, she misunderstands Jesus' words. Do you remember me telling you from the very beginning in John, whenever Jesus shows up with somebody and he's having a conversation with somebody, almost Always, with very few exceptions, there's some kind of misunderstanding. Jesus is telling her he will be raised again. And she says, yeah, I know on the last day. And I think Jesus is like, eh, just wait, right? Right? So Martha here actually falls in with the crowd who is those who misunderstand Jesus. And she's one of the ones who has shown great faith in Jesus. So here's my point. Sometimes those of us who are believers, we can mess things up too. We can miss it, right? Does Jesus blow her up? Like, Martha, you are not getting it. How, why, are you, why are you the way that you are? Why are you missing this? Is that what he does? What's the next verse? Verse 25, Jesus said to her, No, you're misunderstanding because I am the resurrection and the life. Boom diggity. Right there, right? I am the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth I am statement. And it's coupled with the last sign 
that we see that Jesus performs for those to, around him to see. He tells her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And so this is such a big deal for us because Jesus has already done these really hard healings, or excuse me, hard miracles. He had fed 5,000 people. He had healed this blind guy. He had turned water into wine. Like, these are not simple things that some charlatan could do. Four days in the dirt ain't a big deal. Why? Because I'm the resurrection and the life. I have life within me. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was the light of life, right? We find that out from the very get-go. So yeah, it makes sense that he could give life to whoever he wants, including John 10, 10, that I came to give life and life abundantly right now and forever. Don't worry about him being in the dirt. Not a big deal. You seeing that? And so this misunderstanding leads to Jesus talking about how he is the resurrection and the life. And then we see there in this next bit, let's look at uh, verse, actually, let me read something for us first. Almost moved right on. This is what uh, Dr. Cook says about this exact verse. He says, when Jesus asked Martha if she believes, incidentally, did you catch that? Hey, do you believe? And she says, yeah, you're the, God will do anything. Like, I, I know who you are, right? We'll see that in a second. When Jesus asks Martha if she believes, he does not mean that he can bring Lazarus back from the dead, but that life itself is linked to him. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but his question is, do you believe that life is found within me? And she says, yeah. He goes, you got it then. I'm going to show you. Right? Because he goes on to say that, Martha, let me give you an opportunity. Let's read this here in verse 27. Let's pick it up in verse 26. Uh, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You get what I'm saying about this belief? Martha, do you believe? And what does she say? Yeah. Yes. Lord, I believe. And then she rattles off three things. What are the three things that you see in your Bible? I believe that, number one, you are the Christ or the Messiah. Number one. Number two. Son of God, and you're coming into the world. Go read John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and the purpose of John writing his account is his saying, I wrote these things so that you may believe the Son of God has come to give you eternal life. She almost regurgitates word for word John's whole point of writing the gospel. And in this case, she exemplifies what it means to trust in Jesus. I believe you are the Christ. You are the Son of God, and you've come into the world. That's John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Let me fact check myself real quick. Yes, 20, 30, and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Right? So she hits two out of the three, but the having life in his name coming into the world or linked together. That's his purpose, yeah? All right, questions about Martha. Does this make sense? Because this is all just like setting the stage because Jesus hadn't even laid eyes on even the tomb yet, yeah? Other questions, comments? Gary, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? Is that the question? Would, would that relate to they have to be alive? In other words, you can't 
Yeah, okay, so the question was in verse 26, in my translation it reads, uh, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Is that how yours is translated? Whoever lives and believes in me? Yeah, and so the way that works out in the Greek is living and believing are linked as though it's one idea. If you are living according to the way that I have taught you to live and you are following me, you'll never die. I think that's the connection there. So to answer the question precisely, is there a situation where someone could live but not believe in Jesus? Is, is, I, I'm, I got a little fuzzy on the last bit. If you have to be alive, to, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I get your point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there is an idea theologically, depending on what kind of flavor of Christian you may belong to, um, some people believe that there is an opportunity after death in which you will be given an opportunity to believe in Jesus, and there's like a second chance, right? Um, one, I don't think there's any biblical basis for that. If you look in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, where that's found, where Christ goes and proclaims to the spirits in prison, um, that's where they get that idea. I, just, I don't think that's even what that idea is about in 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, but the idea of you could have a second chance, if you go read uh, Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 5 or so, um, that's whenever the author of Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to live once, then face judgment. So I don't think that there is a second chance. And if this verse is meant to mean that, then grammatically it doesn't even hold water to get to that point, right? You would have to separate grammatically how that even works out in the Greek, and that's just not happening. So I, that, I'm with you. I don't think that that's being supported here. So to say it positively, yes, I agree with you that you are correct and that this does not promote an idea that there's a second chance. In fact, it's the opposite. It says there's one, life, then judgment, after death. No, 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 yeah, but that, just to clarify, I, I, I was weaving in and out very poorly, and I wanted to try to put a bow on that. My bad. He lived, yeah. Yes. I don't think this is a promise. The question was in verse 25, uh, Jesus says, though someone may believe in me and though he die, he may live. I don't think that that is a conditional statement that, hey, if you die, Jesus might just raise you up back to physical life and he might die again. Like, I don't, I don't think that's the presupposition. The, the condition there is death and then spiritual life, which is really what we talked all about in John chapter 12 verses one, or excuse me, John chapter 10 verses one through 20. Yeah, that was last week. Yes, R.O. Yeah, so the question there is like, if it wasn't for the promise that Jesus make, that Jesus makes to all of his believers is that he will raise them up eventually. Like, that's greatly comforting, yes? Is that your comment? Yeah, yeah I'm right there with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know much about what the intermediary state would be, what happens between death and that spiritual life. I don't understand that, but I think that's a little bit beyond even what Jesus is talking about here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but there's a promise. There's a promise of life that comes after this death. George? That's worldly life. 
Yeah, yeah. Physical, physical life and then physical death. Yeah, whenever you look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, what Paul says is that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We followed the prince of the power of the air, the flesh that's in us, and the world around us. He says that we are dead. He's not talking about physically dead. He's talking about spiritually dead. Verse 4 and 5, but because of the great mercy with which God loved us, he raised us. And this is that spiritual life that he's talking about. Yes, believers. Yep, absolutely. And so this is where, let me put a bow on these comments. This is something that we are going to deal with. Right? Whenever we preach through 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, they are tore up about, like, what do we do with all these Christians who died? Like, Christ hadn't come back. Like, did they miss out? Like, are they just hosed? And the answer is no. There's, there is still a promise, right? And the emblematic nature of this sign that Jesus works on Lazarus is something that we take that idea and we incorporate it into this ultimate resurrection, which we'll talk about here in a bit. Yeah, so this is going to come down to brass tacks for us because every one of us are going to die or see Christ return. Those are the only two options. Yeah? Rock on. Let's look at verse 28. Those are good questions. I appreciate the questions and comments. That was good stuff. I was going to look at verses 28 through 32. I was going to read uh, probably the first four or so verses of that section. Verse 28. And when she had said this, this faith that she had just expressed in Jesus, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, hey, the teacher is calling for you. Hey, Jesus is here. You, you should go talk to him. He just kind of blew my mind. He said he's the resurrection and life. I don't know what he means exactly, but like, you should go hear what he said to me. right? <clears throat> he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly, and they went. Verse 30, 31, and 32, the whole crowd goes out with her. If you didn't know about how burial practices happened in the first century for Jews, the day you died, they put you in the dirt. Or in this case, a hole in a rock, right? The tomb where they had a big rock over in front of it. Um, so you were buried that day, which is, again, where we get four days, right? And so what would happen is you would bury them, and if you were somebody of any kind of financial means, you would literally hire people to come mourn with you. Professional mourners. You would have a couple of dudes playing some flutes. You'd have some homegirl over there crying really loud and really well. It's a very foreign concept, but what that did is it like, it would announce for people, hey, there's somebody coming behind me and they are tore up. You better get out of the way because you need to either join in in the morning or leave. And so they would proceed before the family. And so Mary gets up and they think, oh, she's leaving to go cry somewhere else. We can leave. Let's go do our job, right? So that's what happens. This whole procession comes out there with Mary. Verse 31, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, those professional mourners, saw Mary rise quickly to go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, what does your Bible say? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It is the exact same thing Martha said. But you notice there are different reactions, right? Martha runs out to meet Jesus. Mary hangs out at the house until she's kind of pried out of there. But yet they have the same faith. Do not ever look down on someone else whose faith is different and causes them to respond differently to either stress or crisis, or mourning, they have the same faith. Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
It's the exact same thing Martha said. And Jesus didn't rip Martha, but he's going to tear into Mary here, right? No. Look at, verse, look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. <whistles> deeply moved in his spirit. And he was greatly troubled. And when he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, over here, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And then verse 36, so the Jews said, hey, see how he loved him? But then some of them said, hey, man, he could heal that blind dude. Why, what, like, he can heal the blind dude, but he can't take a Lazarus. Like, he should have been here too. You kind of see how that's working out? Let's talk about this. Number one, Lazarus's family, they are actively mourning. Mary's in the house. Martha just left the house. A whole crowd comes out after them. Like, they are in the middle of being tore up, okay? You will actively mourn at some point in your life. Get ready for it. Right? That's literally what we preached, or, uh, Pastor Anthony preached about, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whenever we were talking about learning how to lament well, right? That's what we're talking about here, lamenting. But here's the deal. Mary shows the exact same faith as Martha. Go back and look at verse, what is it, 1121. It's the same words. Look at her go. Tweaking out. It's the exact same words, right? And so this is where I want to get nerded out for you for just a little bit. If you look there in verses 33 and then 35 and 36, you actually see that Jesus begins to openly mourn for Lazarus. But there's a little bit of a different way that he's mourning. Let's look there in verse 35. I'll read you what my translation is, and then you tell me what yours says. Uh, sorry, verse 33. Uh, Jesus, who has uh, seen all those who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. There's a footnote in my Bible that says indignant. Does anyone else have another translation other than deeply moved there in verse 33? My Bible says he groaned in his spirit. He groaned in his spirit. He was troubled. Anybody else? What that word actually means is that Jesus' sadness was actually mixed with anger. He was mad. Mad. The word that gets used there is embrimaomai. Embrimaomai. It's the same word. Uh, it comes from embrusio. Great word. Embrusio. It's the word for a horse. <sighs> Whenever it snorts. When a horse does that. How many of y'all grew up around horses when they get snorting? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That means they're pretty mad or they're like needing you to get their attention. Like you need to like check on something for me because either I'm about to hurt you or something else. It's the same word. Jesus is snorting mad and weeping. I don't know if any of y'all have ever been there, but I have. Like where there's this deep searing loss and pain, but it's also anger. So it begs the question, what's Jesus mad at? What do y'all think? Because that's the word that gets used. By the way, it only gets used, that same word, embrimaomai, it only gets used like three other times in the New Testament, and all of them have to do with anger. So, I mean, it's not like this is just some weird usage. That's what he's meaning to say. Jesus was mad and sad. I don't know what word that is. Indignant, another translation. What is he mad at? You tell me. The sin of the world. How so? You get that? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. 
Let's come back to Joyce's comment there. Jesus was mad at the fact that there was sin in the world. What did that sin in the world bring about? Death. What did John say in John chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 about the thief? Compared to the good shepherd, Jesus is saying, no, 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 the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I came to give life. And the very next story we see here in John chapter 11 is there's a dead dude over there, and Jesus is mad about it. What else Jesus? What else could Jesus possibly be mad about? Comments. Say again. Comments. The comments. What comments? In verse thirty-seven. In verse thirty-seven, what happens there? <laughs> so Jesus hears the crowd murmuring, like, "Hey, man, I thought this was the dude that healed the blind guy. Like, shouldn't he be able to do this? Like, why can't he handle this too?" Let me read for you. This is what D.A. Carson says about this. He says, Some think that Jesus is moved by their grief and, in consequent, uh, and consequently is angry with sin. Joyce, get a dollar. He's angry with sin, sickness, and death in this fallen world that wrecks uh, so much havoc and generates so much sorrow. Others think that the anger is directed at the unbelief itself. A little bit later on, he says, this world, and the, the idea is like, man, Jesus is mad at people being unbelieving in him, and like, he came into the world. Like, how does this work? This is what Carson says. The world that is in enmity with God, it's, it's in hostility with God, is also the object of God's love. So it is not surprising that when he is shown at the tomb here where his body lay, he is weeping and angry. You see how that works? I think a lot of times we pigeonhole Jesus into having just a one-dimensional kind of way that he operates in the world, and that ain't it, right? He is angry at the fact that his friend is dead. He is angry at the fact that death has entered the world because of sin, and he's also angry because there are some people over there who don't believe that he can do anything about it. So what does he do? Show me where he's at. Incidentally, what is it that Martha, or excuse me, Mary says to him? Come and see. Does that ring any bells for us in John's gospel? If you go back to the end of John chapter 1 with Nathaniel and uh, Andrew. Is it Andrew and Nathaniel? Either way, with Nathaniel. Um, Philip and, and Nathaniel. Um, Nathaniel says, hey man, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like there's no way he's the Messiah. And what does Andrew say to him, or Philip? Come and see. All throughout John, what you see, come and see, is an invitation for someone to come and find out about Jesus. Here, Jesus, or excuse me, uh, John is putting on the lips of Mary an invitation for Jesus to come and show out. So it's like jazz. It's a variation on the theme. So normally we see somebody come and see what Jesus has already done. Here is an invitation for Jesus to go do something. And so what does Jesus do? He's going to do and build on what everyone else is upset about with this blind man. Because even though that's causing unbelief, that some folks are saying, man, if he could heal this blind guy, why, can't he why couldn't he have taken care of Lazarus? It keeps paying dividends. Because that's a demonstration of Jesus' power and his love. Yeah? All right. 28 through 32. Comments, questions, gripes, complaints. And by the way, if you're taking notes, I've got these online. We'll get you taken care of if you miss something. Questions about this five-verse section here.
All right, so let's talk about Jesus and Lazarus then. Let's look here in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. So we're not done mourning. He's still upset. He's still crying. Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone laid against it. And Jesus said, hey, take away that stone. And Martha, who was the sister of the dead man, said, hey, he's been dead for four days. Not a great idea, right? Let's not. So is this unbelief there in Martha's voice? I don't know. I think this is more just a basic, like, this is a big deal. He's been dead for a while. Like, I don't know what you're planning on doing, but like, he's for real dead. And he's been for real dead for four days. Yeah. And there's this odor, verse 40. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? All right. So let's talk about some things. Number one, Jesus is going to do the work of the Father, no matter the obstacles. Move the stone, but he's dead. Not a big deal. For four days, not a big deal. He is stinking. His body is decomposing. Not a big deal. Turn back with me real quick. I kind of skipped over it back in chapter 11. Look with me there in verse 9. Chapter 11, verse 9. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And then after this, he says, hey, Lazarus is dead. Let's go. The whole point is Jesus knows what he is here to do. And there's not an obstacle that's going to stop him from doing what the Father has laid out for him in his work. Word? Tracking with that? So nothing's going to stop him. And the reason why is because God's glory is at stake. Read with me there in verse uh, 40. Is it 40? Yeah, verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? That's literally what he said to the disciples. Hey, this doesn't lead to death. This is for God's glory. We're going to see it. People are going to believe. It's okay, guys. Let's hang around here for two more days and then we'll go. Says the exact same thing. But notice that Jesus is connecting the glory of God here with belief yet again. Let me rattle off a list for you. In John chapter 11, right? John chapter 11, verse 15, verse 25, two different times in verse 26, verse 27, verse 40, which we just read, 42 and 45. Every one of those eight verses in chapter 11 all talk about belief or faith. I'm not a rocket surgeon, right? But when I see an idea like that repeated numerous times, it's probably a big deal. And what does Jesus say? If you believe you'll see that this results in the glory of God. Yeah? We'll come back around to that idea here in just a bit, but the point is, faith and belief in Jesus is a big deal. That's exactly what Martha had already extolled and says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming to the world. Time to put up or shut up. Watch this, right? Verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. <clears throat> Y'all hear that? Like that's what Jesus does. He starts praying out loud. And I'm saying that uh, I'm praying this way so they believe in me, right? But I said on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had, did, who had died came out, and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, hey, unbind that guy, let him go. Here's the next thing. Jesus' audible prayer there is not for his benefit, it's for yours. Are you getting that? 
his prayer that he had that John is recording, he's saying, that's for y'all's benefit. Why did John, the apostle, our author, why did he record it? Well, what does John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 say? I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have eternal life. Yeah? That's for your benefit. At some level, Jesus didn't have to do this. But he actually goes a step further, and he adds a little drama to the situation. He cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, right? I've read a commentary, uh, in fact, Origen, from like the 5th century, um, was a big proponent of the idea that if, uh, if Jesus hadn't have declared Lazarus come out of the tombs, then everyone would have arisen, because he's that powerful, yeah. <laughs> right? I don't know if that's exactly what's going on, but the point is, he calls out specifically Lazarus, and homeboy comes out, right? So he adds some drama, hey, this is for y'all's benefit, and he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come on out, homie, and he comes out, but here's the deal, as great as that is, does it not bother the, any of the rest of y'all that we don't hear anything about Lazarus at the end of this? Look with me there in verse 30, uh, excuse me, 44. He came out with his feet and his face covered. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. And then John goes and sits down with Jesus and says, okay, what happened after that? Where's that? The focus is not on Lazarus. It's on the fact that Jesus did this two and four Lazarus. Are you seeing that? I would love to hear what was going through that dude's head, but we don't get it. And here's the reason. Because the resurrection that Jesus has is going to eclipse Lazarus' resurrection. In fact, Lazarus kind of stumbles out of the cave, as it were. If you go read in John chapter 20, verse 7, when they roll over and open the stone and they see what's in there, do you know what John says that uh, the first witnesses see laid on the little bench where Jesus' body was? Not only is it not Jesus, but he made his bed. He's got all the strips of linen folded up and is neatly packaged. This dude came shuffling out the, out the door and he had to go get some help from some guys. Jesus told him to go help this dude. But when Jesus resurrects, he doesn't need any help. Are you seeing that? The focus is not on Lazarus. That's why we don't hear from him. The focus is on Jesus did this. Yeah? Cool? All right, we're going to burn through these last two sections. Questions about this section. Ed, yes, sir. Oh, yeah, we're going to go faster. Yes, ma'am. No, I think he's. I think this is a real resurrection. Was there more to the question? Well, and the, and the reason I asked is he was raised to die again, mm -hmm. and then he wasn't raised in a glorified body. Right, right. So when we do need to couch what we mean by a resurrection, um, because if what we mean by a resurrection is simply that somebody is given a new lease on life for a time, then yes, this is a true resurrection. If what you mean by this being a true resurrection is that he never dies again, then no, because Lazarus dies. He eventually dies again, right? Does Jesus die again after his resurrection? No. Will you, if you are a believer? No, no right? However, <clears throat> I mean, I thought I had it marked in here. 
there's a couple of different guys who actually do a miracle of resurrection. Um, there is uh, Elijah and Elisha both. In fact, Elijah's bones. Some dude falls into a shallow grave on top of Elijah's bones and he springs back to life. Crazy, right? So there's been other resurrections, but those cats die, right? Jesus resurrects somebody else in uh, Matthew's gospel. Peter raises someone to life as well, right? But all those dudes die. My point is Jesus's resurrection is going to eclipse it because he never dies and his resurrection ensures that you will have a spiritual one that will never taste death again. Yeah. So the clarifying question of was this really a resurrection? Well, I think we have to define, defend what you mean by your definition of resurrection, but like this wasn't a resuscitation, I'll say that. He wasn't in cardiac arrest and they stabilized his heart rate and then got him some oxygen and he was good to go. No, dude was dead for four days and started to stink, right? So, other questions? Yeah, I don't know. The question was, does the Jewish thought that there was the spirit that was within the body is released after three days or it remains for three days? I, I don't know enough about that. What I do know is that biblically, you are not some entombed soul that's waiting to escape your corporeal body, right? To escape this mortal coil. That's not how this is working out. You have a body, yes, but you are a spiritual being. Now, exactly how Jewish thought works out, I, I don't know enough about that, to be honest with you. So, I'd have to look into that a little bit more. Oh, no, yeah, there's no doubt that, yeah, he was dead for sure. For sure, yes. I can say that much confidently. Because if that weren't true, why would Martha be concerned with, like, hey, he's starting to stink? Right? All right, let's talk about this. Uh, various responses that we see. Let's pick it up there in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. It's almost exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. This is for the glory of God, so that others may believe. Show enough, that happens, right? So, he says that many of them believed, verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, hey, well, what are we going to do? This dude keeps on doing crazy stuff. He keeps on performing miracles and signs. Here's the point. Jesus' sign, as John calls it, this miracle, it has its intended effect. There are people who believe in Jesus because they saw what he did. Right? That all through chapters 5 through 10, this forensic motif that people are gathering evidence, Jesus constantly is going, hey, just look at the works I do. That'll tell you that I'm from God. That'll tell you I'm divine. Well, when they see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they're like, yep, I believe. He, he's got to be God. Never seen something like this before, right? It has its intended effect. However, the Pharisees, they see the exact same evidence, and they don't deny that the signs are taking place, but they reject that he is who he says he is. So the rejection is a little more nuanced. They actually know he keeps doing this. Guys, what are we going to do about this? Did you hear about the 5,000 dudes he fed? We can't cover that up. What about that blind dude? Like, everyone saw him. Right? I heard about some wine this dude made. Like, and he just, this guy is alive now. And he's of some means. People know who Lazarus is. What are we going to do? Then we get our boy Caiaphas. Pick it up there in verse 
49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Guys, you're worrying about this. And let me tell you what we're going to do. You don't understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should perish. And what he's saying is, like, if we let this dude keep doing this, the Romans are going to come check us out. They're going to kick us out of power, and they're going to kill this dude and maybe all of us. However, if we get out ahead of it and we just get the Romans to kill him, then the rest of Israel were saved. You see what he says there? And he speaks paradoxically, right? So what he's saying is, it's better for one man to die than all of us lose our position. And really what's going on is, it's better for one man to die so you can take up a better position. Yes? In John chapter 10, whenever Jesus says, hey, the, the shepherd of the sheep lays down his life, normally that's spelt disaster for the sheep. Here, it's for our benefit. And Caiaphas is the one who says it. Pick it up in verse 51. This is John, our author, speaking. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into the children of God who, who were scattered abroad. So from that day, that day forward, they made plans to kill Jesus. So they're like, hey, he's got to go. Yep, we've been planning it. That's the last nail in the coffin. Dude's got to die, period. And we need to make sure that we have him hung by the Romans. That way they are satisfied and they don't come after us. You seen how that works out? protecting his own power, the status quo. And so what happens in verse 54, Jesus, from then on, he doesn't go to Jerusalem. He gets more secluded. His boys who said, hey, they're going to try to kill you. Sure enough, that's what happens, right? We see this scene where they're resolved to kill Jesus, and so Jesus starts being more secluded. Chapter 12, verse 1, we'll see him come back to Bethany, but that's because he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's about to die anyway, right? And then lastly, his final Passover is on the way. Chapter 12, verse 1. We're six days out. And then the rest of John is like a week and a half worth of time. Yeah? Cool? Let me finish this last bit and we'll do our final thoughts. There's a weird little section in chapter 12, verses 9 through 11, where Lazarus comes back. We're like, oh, this is where we hear from Lazarus. Nope. You don't ever hear from Lazarus. This is what happens. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, getting anointed by Mary, right? Remember back in chapter 12, or back to... Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. They came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who is raised from the dead. So, Jesus returns to Bethany, and the crowd's got to see everything for themselves. Let's go see this dude, Lazarus, who is alive. Jesus is back. Let's go talk to Lazarus. Let's see if it happened for real. Verse 10. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and doing what? Believing, Believing in Jesus. And so Lazarus gets added to the hit list. That dude's got to go, because if he keeps walking around talking to people, what's he going to tell them? Oh, yeah, I was dead for a bit, like four days. No, we're not. This is, this is just the last bit of wrapping up 11. I got you covered, Sue. So what are they going to do with Lazarus? They keep, people keep believing that Jesus is who he says he is because Lazarus keeps running his mouth. What do we need to do to Lazarus? Got to kill him too. Yeah? Sucks to be him. <laughs> R.O. We will talk about that. 
So there's been martyrs. There will continue to be martyrs for the name of Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. All right, so final questions about these last two sections that I kind of blaze through before we get final thoughts. Rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't even, it, the comment there was, it doesn't even seem as though Caiaphas even entertained the idea that Lazarus or Jesus couldn't actually be finally dealt with. Yeah. But they're going to kill him. That's the point, right? Ed? They're going to kill him again. Like, man, that's, that's a tough break, homie. Sorry. Right? Yes, sir. Paul. Forty-five and forty-six are the most, some of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Why? Many believed. Yeah. Dude was dead for real. Rotting. And yet somebody's like, yeah, but come on, really? Jesus? Nazareth? Who's his dad? Exactly. Right? That's the comment that that's what was said to him back in chapter 8, right? Who's your daddy? And he's like, don't worry about my daddy. He's from above. But I know who your dad is. He's the devil. Oh, zing. Right? Yeah, a lot of denial. A lot of denial. All right. Y'all ready for your final thoughts? And then we'll have our final comments overall. Here we go. Buckle up. Number one, the climactic sign, this healing, this resurrection of of, uh, Lazarus, that sign that Jesus provides, it points to a greater resurrection. And that was your point, Ed. There's something greater. Jesus' resurrection will eclipse Lazarus's, and so will yours. Not because Jesus calls you out of a rock, but because he died at Golgotha and he was resurrected out of a cave. That's why. Yeah? But belief is what's required. You notice there that Jesus connected seeing the glory of God and belief. We'll talk about that here in just a bit, but you can't separate those two. Here's a second thought. Suffering will come to God's people. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. We have no reason to believe that Lazarus wasn't someone who had trusted in Jesus and was a follower at some degree. We've got no evidence to say to the contrary. Every indication is that he does believe in Jesus, right? Why'd he die? That's the crowd's contention. Hey, man, he could heal the blind dude. Why didn't he just take care of Lazarus before he died? (laughs) Right? But what we know is that being a follower of Jesus guarantees suffering. It doesn't keep you from it. It guarantees it. And so let's talk about this next thing. Having faith in God is not just a faith in Him. It's also a faith in His timing. That one hurts. That hurts. Lazarus was basically dead when the messengers left. Whenever we see the story unfold, Jesus intentionally waits two more days. 
Maybe that's to ensure he starts stinking. Yeah? And from the outside looking in, Jesus, if you'd just been there to begin with, it'd been all right. But if you're going to be called to trust in God, that means you're trusting in him with everything, including when things go down. And that's hard. Especially if the timing is also, hey, you're going to suffer, and it might be lifelong. I had a uh, professor, Dr. Seifred, and uh, he told a story of one of his professors whenever he did his um, PhD in Germany. And this guy was basically, had been a professor at this uh, seminary for like 30 years, and he had like Parkinson's and all sorts of other stuff, and he was basically bound to his home. But he still taught, he would have students come to his home. And one of the guys in their class just said, hey, like, how do you do this? Like, you keep having us over here, you keep teaching, and like, we see the pain you're in, like, how do you do this? And Dr. Seifert tells a story that this old professor smiles and he points at him and says, the day that I realized that God made me a steward of everything he had given me, including my pain, changed my perspective. Sometimes that suffering, it might be lifelong. And yet you're called to trust and believe in him nonetheless. Because the climactic sign that he provides is greater than what you're going to experience now. Be faithful unto death is what we see in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, right? Be faithful unto death. But how long? Until I tell you to stop. Until then, trust me. And here's the last thing. Only those with faith. Actually, it's not the last thing. Hold that. Only those with faith are going to see God's glory. That connection of suffering and believing God and, and seeing his glory, that's all connected, yeah? But here's the last thing. Lazarus, he's got to go. He can't keep walking around telling people about what Jesus did. Here's my point for y'all. Your salvation story is powerful too. You may not have been raised from the dead physically like Lazarus was, but you presently, if you have trusted in Christ, you have already been raised spiritually, and you have that life now. Therefore, your story is powerful. Take it a step further, that might make some folks mad. Take it a step further, they might want to hurt you. That might mean suffering. That might mean lifelong suffering. It could mean death. Do you believe it? That's the question that Jesus asked Mary and Martha. Do you believe? Yeah? Cool. Watch this. Move the rock. Are you sure about that? Yes. Lazarus, come here. And he says that Harvey, Rich, Alita, Bobby, come here. That's your story. It's powerful. So the final question I have for you is, who are you telling? If you're telling nobody, that's a problem. That is a big problem. If your story is that powerful and you're not telling anybody about it, let's fix that. Yeah? So, comments, questions, gripes, complaints? Gracie made us late. It's 7.33 already. Address all complaints to her. Final thoughts about John chapter 11. Yes, sir. Yeah, what's the question? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so whenever Peter picks that up in 1 Peter 3, as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians, I'm wrong, but I'm saying 1 Corinthians 9. Let's just say 1 Corinthians. Um, he talks about that we are baptized into Christ um, and that we are sharing in a death like his so that we might have a life like his. But yeah, that we're baptized into that. Now, I'm sure there's some spiritual reality that's going on there that I don't fully grasp, but what I do recognize is like even whenever we baptize up here um, in some churches, the, the invocation is you baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that's like required biblically. But a lot of times churches will say buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. I don't repeat that, not because I don't believe it, but because I want to highlight the, uh, the obedience to Matthew 28, that we are baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son. Boom, right there. Right there in the Holy Spirit. Boom, you're done. But yes, I do believe that you're baptized into a death like his in that sense. Other questions? If you believe there is such a thing as a rapture. Oh, sure. I do not. You did not believe I do not. No, ma'am. I would just ask you just very clearly, go find me in Scripture where that is. And the moment you the bring that to me. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the idea. Oh. Find for me the verse where the idea of the rapture. Okay. I don't care what David Jeremiah says. I care what the Bible says. Okay. I will gladly listen to it. George. We're getting off topic with that. So if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that later. Other questions? All right. So we are done with John chapter 11. Next week, we are going to look at John chapter 14, 1 through 13. No, 1 through 31. I'm dyslexic. We're going to look at John chapter 14. Um, so I'm going to make a video that's going to recap what happens in John chapter 12 and 13. We just had to make necessary cuts. And so we're going to chapter 14. Yep. All right. Again, if you've got problems with how long we went, talk to Gracie. She will answer any complaints you have. And then, uh, yeah, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that we have been given such an example of what it looks like to have faith in Christ and recognizing that your son, Jesus, is in fact the Christ, who is the son of God and is coming to the world, and that there is in fact a promise of resurrection to come. And Father, I thank you that that is something that we get to participate in right now. It's not something that just waits for the future, even though it's going to be culminating in the future, but we get to experience that resurrected life, this freedom from the, the power of sin right now. And so, Father, I'm thankful for that. I pray that you would use what we have talked about tonight to change how we look at the world and that we would speak to others about this powerful testimony we have about being resurrected and raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that mightily for us and that we would be obedient to whatever it is you're calling us to do. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, if you missed any of the notes, come talk with me. I'll get you taken care of.